Um, for those who don't know me, my name's John. I'm one of the leaders here at King's. I lead our Hazelmere site, which is where I've just come from. Um, so um, it's great to be here to see you guys again and speak to you as well. And as Ron just said, we're starting this seven-week series on generosity today. We've been talking about this for a, for a little while. It's all based in the Gospel of Luke. And today we'll be in Luke chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you might want to find that. That would be helpful to have that open in Luke chapter 18. And uh, you, I guess you probably hear generosity and the immediate thought is money. Um, are we doing seven weeks on money? Well, Ron has just explained that we're not doing that. And I'll explain again, no, we're not doing seven weeks on money. Clearly, how we handle money and how we give money is a really, really important part of generosity. And we'll certainly come to it later in the series. Um, it, you know, the theme of generosity is certainly not less than how we're generous with money, but it's actually an awful lot more than that. It's so much more radical than that, because that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, is a radical generosity, a, a, a kind of generosity that runs so deep within that it, it, it goes right through us. It permeates every area of life, everything we do, everything we say, every area of life, because it's perfectly possible to be generous financially, but to actually still be fundamentally ungenerous. To not be radically generous. What does radically generous mean? Well, radical just means at your root, at your core, radically generous. You can give a lot of money away and still not be radically generous or even be ungenerous. So today, at the start of this series, what I'm really seeking to establish a couple of things. The first thing is, what is radical generosity? What does it look like? And the second thing is, how do we get it? How do we become radically generous? And the passage that we're going to be looking at today, it doesn't deal directly with generosity. It's more about self-righteousness and pride and humility. But in there, we find the foundation for generous living. And I hope that will become clear as I go on. So I'm going to be reading Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So we've got a tax collector and a Pharisee. It kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Did you hear the one about the tax collector and the Pharisee? No, we've got a tax collector and a Pharisee. Now, tax collectors, I, I would estimate that there's not been any point in the whole of human history through all the ages of the world ever where tax collectors have been particularly popular people. But we've got to understand that in this context here, to be a tax collector is really a terrible thing. It really is. They are the scum of the earth. They're the lowest of the low. They're absolutely loathed and hated. Why? One, because they're Jewish people working for an occupying power. They're working for the Romans. And so they're seen as traitors in much the same way for those who know anything about history. Nazi collaborators would have been seen in France or in the Netherlands in the Second World War and immediately afterwards. That's the level of hatred and how these people are despised. So they're seen as traitors. They're seen as robbers, really, because they're, 
One, because they're taking Jewish money in, in steep taxes and it's going back to Rome, but also they're skimming off the top. They're, they're charging more than they should, they're pocketing the difference for themselves and living pretty wealthy lifestyles as a result. So these people are seen as parasites, really hated, and, and they're very greedy people. Then you've got the Pharisee. And I guess we probably hear the word Pharisee and we kind of think, boo, hiss, this is the pantomime villain here. This is the villain of the piece. This is the baddie in the story because we hear it in a negative way. But actually for the listeners who are listening to Jesus at the time, they wouldn't have thought of it in that way. It wouldn't have come across in that way at all because Pharisees were viewed by people just as good people up upright, outstanding people. I mean, partly, there were lots of Pharisees in the crowd listening to Jesus, it seems, by the way it's introduced. So they certainly wouldn't have thought that they were the baddie. But actually, in general, Pharisees were seen as people to be admired. These are devout men. These are people who study the scriptures and obey rigorously, scrupulously to every letter, the very detail of the law. They obey. They're holy men. They're generous. They give away 10% of everything they have. Generous people, holy people, Pillar of the community, this is someone to be admired for most of the people listening. But, of course, what we see here, as we see so many times when Jesus encounters the Pharisees, is that Jesus sees way beyond the outer facade, the outer shell, and he sees right through to the heart. And it's a bit like in the Old Testament when God sent Samuel, the prophet Samuel, to the house of somebody called Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel, which would be King David, but Samuel didn't know that, and the first person he sees is Eliab, who's the oldest son, and he looks impressive. He looks like a king. He's tall. He's handsome. And Samuel's thinking, this must be the Lord's anointed. But God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in this parable that we have here, we see two very different kinds of heart on display. And the contrast is pretty stark. You've got the Pharisee who's standing in full view, eyes lifted to heaven, praying eloquently, and he starts with, God, I thank you. And you think that's a pretty good way to start a prayer. That seems appropriate. What he's going to say now is a whole load of things that God has done for him, that God has given him, but that's not what we get at all. We get a list of accomplishments. You know, I'm better than these people. These people I consider beneath me, better than criminals and tax collectors and those kind of people. And I fast twice a week and I tithe, I give 10% of everything I have. Um, that is the, the prayer of the Pharisee. The prayer is outwardly addressed to God, but really the Pharisee is speaking to himself about himself and he's basically saying, Thank you that I am so great. Thank you that I am so wonderful. He's adoring himself and he's praising himself in full view of others and in the process he's looking down on everybody else. And here's where generosity comes in. Because this man, this Pharisee, is technically pretty generous. Because he gives away 10% of everything. That's a lot. Most people in the world don't give away 10% of everything they have. He's technically generous, but he is not radically generous. It's, it's a little bit like when you have somebody who, who gives a lot away, maybe gives a lot of money, but really needs you to know, that really needs the praise of people for that, meeting a need in, in, in yourself, or somebody who gives a lot away but seeks to control those that you give it to. So, you know, well, that's very ungrateful. Do you know how much I've done for you? you now you need to do this for me. You owe me. And this Pharisee here is presenting his fasting and his tithing and his vastly superior moral character as a kind of a badge of uh, achievement, a badge of generosity that should cause God to give him favour. 
But we know that's not generosity, right? True generosity doesn't seek thanks, doesn't seek appreciation, doesn't seek favor and praise from people. So this Pharisee, he gives a lot away, yeah, but he's not generous. He's not generous in heart, he's not generous in character. Generosity has more than one currency. It's not just money. And I'll come back to the prayer of the tax collector in a few minutes, but we see a glimpse of a different kind of generosity in the verses that immediately follow this parable, so verses 15 to 17. It says, People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And Jesus is using this as a teaching opportunity. It's a teaching point he's making about how we should trust God in the same way as a child does, with very simple faith, simple humility like a child. But there's something else going on here as well. And it's this, that in the minds of Jesus' disciples, children are not important. Babies and toddlers are not important. You know, this is going to be a waste of Jesus' time. You've got more important things to do with your time, Jesus. You've got more important people to see. You've got bigger investments to make with your time. You're not going to get anything back from this. But Jesus thinks completely differently. He has the completely opposite attitude. And he invites the children to come to him. Because for him, well, they are worthy of my time. They are important people. And he can make a a teaching point out of this. But you contrast his attitude with the attitude of his disciples. And you see an extravagance in Jesus. Because he doesn't have to give these children his time at all. He could just let his disciples do what they're doing. He doesn't have to give them his time. He's not going to get anything back from them at all. But he chooses to. He chooses to spend time with them. And so there's just a glimpse here of an extravagant generosity in how Jesus uses his time. There's more than one currency of generosity. We're going to be looking at some of them throughout this series. um, But it's not just money. If If you're generous in your heart, if you're radically generous, you won't only be generous with money, you will be generous with money, but not only with money, but in every currency of generosity. So for example, some are happy to give, give generously to a good cause that helps people who support people who have less than you do, and that's good. But I don't want to be personally involved. I don't want to, I don't want to actually have to get to know people and see their conditions and and get emotionally involved. I want to guard my emotional space. I don't want to give that away. I want to keep hold of my my privacy. I want to keep a distance. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't give to causes like that if we're not directly involved? Of course not. Give and keep on giving. They're good good causes. It's just the point is, it's not the only measure of generosity is what, what we give. So I recently had the opportunity to help out in the homeless night shelter run by Wickham Homeless Connection. Um, First three months of the year, the coldest months of the year it runs, and on Sunday evenings we host that in the West End Hall here at King's. And um, by the way, I've never done it before, and I only did it once, did one overnight shift, so I'm not not trying to blow my own trumpet here. Um, But it made me think. It made me think how easy I find it to get a sense of satisfaction and a feeling of generosity out of being part of a church that I give to that gives to help the homeless. But am I willing, and that's very, very good, okay, but am I willing to get my hands dirty? Am I willing to give time? Am I willing to get emotionally involved? Am I really generous? Another currency would be hospitality. And we're going to come to hospitality in a couple of weeks. But, you know, you'd write a cheque, you're very generous. 
but you don't really want anyone coming and walking on your carpets and invading your space. Or time, another currency is time, which we just heard about with that example from, from Jesus. You know, you, we, we tend to want to guard our time. We tend to want to keep hold of my time. And I really resent anybody trespassing on that particular territory. But while we're holding on to something like that, we can't be radically generous because generosity implicitly involves sacrifice. Give a giving away of those things that are, that are precious and open-handedness with those things. Now, you do have to steward your time wisely. There are many, many demands on our time. You have to steward it wisely, just as you have to steward your money wisely, just as you have to steward many other things wisely. But we can very easily use the stewardship card as an excuse for a lack of generosity if we're not careful. Maybe you think you're very, very generous in all sorts of areas, but you hold people to account. People owe you because of everything you've done for them. Or maybe people owe you because they've hurt you in some way. But radical generosity doesn't do that. Radical generosity doesn't hold things over people. It doesn't hold people to account. It doesn't expect things back. It doesn't just help people who will be able to help you back or hold grudges against people. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that if you think you're generous, you're probably not. Okay? Just let that sink in. I hope we're all feeling good about ourselves now. I am not radically generous, and you don't need to nod at this point. I am not, now I have my moments of generosity, I have my moments of selflessness, but I wouldn't say I'm radically generous. Why would I say that, how do I know? Well, because I think we see what we're really like when we're under stress, when we're under pressure, and I know that when I'm under stress, I have a tendency to get snappy and irritable and moody and self-absorbed. You know, pray for my family, pray for my wife, my kids, they put up with a lot. But you know, my wife wants to talk about something important that's going on in her life, and at those moments, I don't. I don't want to talk. And effectively, what am I saying? Effectively, I'm saying because my needs are more important than yours. And that's not generous. That's not even remotely generous. How do you respond under stress? How do you respond in pressure when somebody hurts you? How do you respond when somebody offends you? Because that will show what, what you're really about. That will show what's really in your heart. Because generosity is a heart issue. Now, what did Jesus do when he was under the most stress? When he had been beaten and whipped. And you know, when I say beaten and whipped, it's something which is beyond our imagining here. This is a, a flogging and a whipping that would have killed lots of people. His back is torn to shreds. Uh, he's weak, he, he's got this crown of thorns rammed on his head, there's blood everywhere. He's being mocked, he's being ridiculed, he's being led away to be executed. What does he do? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I don't think that would be my response. And he, he, he has nails driven through his hands and driven through his feet, and he's hanging on the cross in unspeakable agony. And what does he do? He takes time to reassure one of the criminals being crucified next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He has the time to notice his mother and his disciple John, and he, he says, this is your mother, this is, this is your son. Look after each other. In his moment of greatest need, Jesus is looking out for the needs of others those he loves, his family, his friends, and even criminals. It's, it's remarkable. 
that at his most desperate moment, when he's hanging on that cross, when Jesus has been cut the most deeply, what flows out of him, what flows out of his very core, because this is what runs all the way through him, is love and compassion and it's utter generosity. It's radical generosity. And you see, we can't make ourselves like that. Might want to, but we can't make ourselves like that. Yes, we can put on a veneer of generosity, but what is truly in your heart, deep down, will always emerge in the end. Radical generosity is all—it's all pervasive. It permeates every area of life. It's about a life of self-giving. It's a life of self-sacrifice that comes out of a generosity of heart, a fullness in your heart that overflows and overflows with love, compassion, generosity in all circumstances. Generosity has to come out of a fullness of our heart, but I think as human beings, we're all too aware of the emptiness that lies in our hearts. I think we become aware of this at a very young age, that there's a gap, there is a hole, there's something missing, there's something very wrong. This is not how things are supposed to be. And there's this sense of fulfillment that is missing, a sense of happiness that is missing, an emptiness we're trying to fill, whether that be through family, friends, relationships, career, uh, sex, hobbies, leisure, whatever it might be, we're constantly trying to find that fulfillment, find that happiness, we're grasping at it, but it just slips away. We never seem to be able to hit the mark and find that perfect fulfillment that we're looking for. So we're trying to find fulfillment, find happiness, trying to fill that emptiness But if we're operating out of that emptiness in that way, looking to fulfill our needs, yes, we can go around helping lots of people and being very kind, but why do we do it? What is the real motive at the heart of it, at the root of it? You're using them. Maybe because you need to feel needed. Maybe because you need to have people say to you how much you mean to them. You know, you mean the world to me. I don't know what I would do without you. Or it might just be to feel good about yourself. But the thing is, it's selfish. At its heart, if we're operating out of emptiness, it comes back to selfishness. It's not generous. It's not radically generous. It might be to feel proud of yourself like the Pharisee. Look at how generous I am. But actually you're not, if that's the motive, if you're operating out of emptiness. That is not radical generosity. So how do we become radically generous then? And I am making an assumption here that we would all agree, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we'd all agree that the world would be a much better place if there was a lot more generosity in it. If we were all radically generous. So how do we become radically generous? Well, this is where we come back to the tax collector. You see, in the Pharisee, what we have is someone who is technically generous. He's outwardly technically generous, but he's fundamentally ungenerous underneath. In the tax collector, we have someone who is technically greedy. But as we'll see, there's something going on in him that will make him generous. See, in stark contrast with the Pharisee, the tax collector, he stands at a distance because he, he, he feels unworthy. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself like the Pharisee does. He stands at a distance. His eyes are downcast. He's ashamed of his sin. He can't bring himself to look up to heaven because, because he's ashamed of what he's done. He knows what he's like. He knows what he's done wrong. He beats his chest because there's a sense of desperation about him and a sense of despair. There's no hint of self-congratulation. There's no, there's no sense that God should be obligated to him in some way, like the Pharisee, like we see in the Pharisee's prayer. There's an old hymn called Rock of Ages. And one of the lines in that hymn goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
And that's very much the spirit of this prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's asking for God's generosity. He's asking for God to be exceedingly generous to him. I don't deserve anything from you. I have nothing to offer you. You don't owe me anything. I'm a sinful man, but please have mercy on me. He's asking for the generosity of God. Now, we have a concrete example in the very next chapter of Luke of what happens, the story of Zacchaeus, of what happens when a greedy, lying, cheating tax collector experiences the generosity of God. And we'll be looking at the story of Zacchaeus in the final week of this generosity series, so I'm not going to say too much about the story, but the effect is this. Zacchaeus becomes generous. This lying, cheating, greedy tax collector becomes generous when he receives the generosity of God, when he gets filled up with that. He says, I'm going to pay back four times what I've cheated people out of. He's transformed. He's completely changed. For those of you who know the story of Les Mis, Les Miserables, um, the story of Jean Valjean, who's released after 19 years in a French prison, and he's struggling to know what to do, struggling to, to start a new life. And a bishop offers him a place to stay. A, 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 he offers him shelter, a place to sleep. But Jean Valjean, he's so entrenched in his identity of the past and who he is, he can't break free of it. So he repays this kindness by stealing his silverware and running away. And he gets caught, he gets arrested, he gets taken back. But the twist is this, the bishop not only covers for, for him in saying that the silverware was a gift, but he gives him even more. He gives him a couple of really expensive silver candlesticks. And so you have this man who utterly deserves punishment. He deserves judgment. He receives grace. He receives generosity. And this act of mercy we see, this act of generosity completely transforms him. Changed his whole life. It changed how he saw the world. Receiving generosity is what can make us generous. Back to the, the parable though, because actually the really shocking thing about this parable is the bit where Jesus says that it's the tax collector who's justified. He says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, so definitely not the Pharisee, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. What does justified mean? It just means made right before God, legally not guilty before God, legally approved, accepted by God. And not the Pharisee. He goes home not right with God. And you can almost hear the muttering starting in the crowd. What did he say? Did he? Surely he meant the Pharisee was the one who... Did he say the, did he say the tax collector was the one? And you can see them looking around at the faces of the Pharisees, seeing how, how are they responding to this. Because in their minds, the bad person has been approved. The good person has not. This is something, though, you see throughout the book of Luke. Contrast of good person and bad person. So you have Jesus in the home of a Pharisee, and uh, the Pharisee is outraged when a prostitute comes in and pours oil all over Jesus' feet as an act of worship. Good person, bad person. Or you have the story of the prodigal son. The father has two sons, and there's the good older son who sticks with his father, worked hard for many years, and the bad younger son who runs away, makes a complete mess of his life, completely disrespects his family, just makes a big mess of things. You, you have all these episodes throughout the book of Luke of the contrast between a seemingly good person and a seemingly bad person, and every time the bad person gets saved and the good person is lost. The younger son is in the feast, the older son is stuck outside. The bad person is saved, the good person is lost. Now why is that? 
Well, what you have in all of these cases is actually you have two lost people who are both trying to be their own savior. They're trying to be their own God, but in very different ways. You have two empty people who are trying to find that fulfillment that is missing. There's really two ways to be your own savior. There's two ways to try to be your own God. There's the tax collector's way, which is I'm gonna do my own thing, I'm gonna trample on people, I'm gonna destroy people so I can get what I want, and I'm gonna try and fill that gap with money, with things, with experiences, or whatever it might be. And then there's the Pharisee's way of being your own savior, which is just by being very, very good, being a moral person, doing things for others, giving money away, being very, very moral. So then you're in a position to say, to be very proud about that and say effectively, you owe me, God. In fact, I'm an asset to you. You need more like me. And all you people, you owe me as well. You, you can get proud about it. The Pharisee cannot comprehend the idea that he is just as empty, he is just as in need of a saviour as the tax collector. And if you're a religious Pharisee type, if you're someone who tries to be your own saviour by being very moral and very good and effectively pushing God out of the way, you might pray to God, but he's not your saviour. Because you don't need a saviour in your mind. Because you are good. You know, you are your own saviour. You're a good person, not like, not like criminals. Not like those who you consider to be beneath you. And that is really the mark of being a Pharisee. Is that you look down on people. You look down on people. You, you're superior. You're, you're self-righteous. That's the mark of being a Pharisee. Time and again, through the Bible, through the book of Luke, the bad get saved, the good are lost. In, in Matthew 21, Jesus says to the Pharisees, says, you know, you've you got to understand this, the, the tax collectors and the Pharisees will get into the kingdom of God ahead of you. That's what he says to the Pharisees. I say Pharisees. The tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God ahead of you. He's saying that to the Pharisees. He's not saying it's good to be a tax collector or a prostitute. And he's not saying there's no hope for a Pharisee. He's not saying they get rewarded for being bad and you get punished for being good. Not at all. He's saying you're both trying to be your own saviour, but the difference is the good person doesn't know it. The Pharisee doesn't know it. It's a bit like if you're sick with a curable disease that you refuse to acknowledge, you refuse to do anything about it, and you end up dying of that disease. Is it really the sickness that killed you? No, it's not really. It's your, it's your denial of the sickness. It's your refusal to acknowledge that there is a problem and do anything about it. But the Bible's very clear indeed that we all have a problem. We all of us have a problem. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether you are the most morally upstanding person who gives lots away and helps lots of people in your street or in your town or in your nation, or you are the lowest of the low in society, you have the same problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a saviour, but many don't think that they do because I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, I'm a generous person, I'm certainly better than that person there. Well, that is one of the signs that there's a problem when you look down on people. Maybe you've experienced religious people like this, though. You know, the Pharisee types, moralistic, judgmental, superior, and quite frankly, it's turned you right off Christianity, full stop, because you lump Christianity in with that experience. And in our day, of course, it's all about being open-minded. It's about being tolerant. Um, not like those religious bigots. Um, and I guess I and many people in here would be classed as a religious bigot because you have firmly held beliefs and convictions based on the Bible. 
But the, the, the religious Pharisee mindset is this. They, the religious Pharisee thinks the good are in and the bad are out. And I am not one of the bad people, so I'm okay. The secular liberal progressive of today maybe thinks the open-minded people are in, the bigoted people are out, and I'm not one of the bigoted people. But you're still a Pharisee. You are still a Pharisee because you're still looking down on people. You're still effectively saying, thank you that I am not like one of them. And it really is very striking, actually, in our society today of just how many people who espouse values of liberalism and tolerance are some of the most intolerant people you could ever meet. Utterly intolerant to the point of hatred of anyone who dares to express a different opinion or a different point of view to their tolerant one. The gospel is just so much better. It's so much better. The gospel is not good are in and bad are out. The gospel is not open-minded are in and bigoted people are out. No, the gospel is the humble are in and the proud are out. Jesus says it himself here. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. There's an author called Brennan Manning who puts it like this. Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need, who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. The humble are in, the proud are out. And by the way, humility isn't a virtue that you use to earn salvation because that takes you down the road of pride. And that's the opposite of humility. No, no, humble is simply what you become when you are faced with God in all his holiness, in all his purity, and it's like a spotlight shining on you and it exposes everything that is wrong with you. And then, having experienced that, you experience the indescribable love of God for you once you realize how undeserved it is. That is amazing. That is what makes you humble. And you see, if the, that's how I experienced God for the first time when I was 17 and how I've experienced him many times since. In the presence of his holiness. It's like Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet... He was seen as the most righteous man of his generation. And then he sees this vision of God in the temple. And in the presence of God, and in the presence of God's holiness and God's purity, he's just completely undone. The most righteous man of his generation, completely wrecked. And all he can say is, woe to me. Faced with God's holiness, woe to me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. This tax collector in the parable comes before God God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's not just asking for mercy in terms of sympathy, compassion, or, you know, please, God, let me off, go easy on me, that kind of thing. No, the Greek word translated mercy here is an unusual one. It's not the usual word for mercy. It, it, the, the Greek word has this sense of atonement, atonement, appeasing the righteous and just wrath of God for sin atonement. The tax collector knows what he is like. He knows exactly what he's like. He's under no illusions. He knows he deserves to be cut off from God, just like we all do. That's what we all deserve, to be cut off from God. And he's coming to God saying, please atone for my sin. Please, God, make it right between me and you, knowing that he himself can do nothing about that. Please, God, make it right between me and you. And this Greek word, translated mercy, is used only one other time in the New Testament, and it's Hebrews 2.17, which talks about Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people. 
Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people. And when we realize what that means, what that involved, that God is so utterly other than us, he's so holy, he so hates evil, and he hates sin, and we do all deserve, because we are sinful, we deserve to be cut off from him, but he's also so full of love that he came. He didn't abandon us, he came to rescue us, he came as a man, he came as Jesus. And in doing so, he lost everything, he laid aside everything, he gave everything of who he is, to the point of being tortured, God being tortured and killed on a cross, shedding his blood for our sin, forever, so that we could be with him forever. When we get that, when we realize what that means, you realize that actually asking for mercy from God, asking for atonement from God is really asking for the extravagant generosity of God because generosity by its very nature, generosity costs Generosity hurts, it's sacrificial. And nobody in the history of the world made a sacrifice or paid a cost like Jesus did, and he did it for you. He did it for me, he did it purely with you in mind and out of complete and utter love for you. And if you don't know that, and if you don't know him, well then come to him like the tax collector in all humility and ask him for that radical, costly generosity of God. Ask him for that. Ask him to fill you with that. Ask him to show you that. Ask him that the sacrifice he made would count for you. Because he did it for you. Ask him that that sacrifice would count for you. Ask him for his generosity in your life. And Christians, this world is in desperate need of generosity. Desperate need of the grace of God. And the church should be the place of greatest generosity that there is. This should be the most generous place there is, the most generous people there are, a community of grace with arms wide open. So let us, as Christians, continue to rely on that radical, costly generosity of Jesus. Continue to rely on it. Not just acknowledge it, but rely on it for our very lives, every day, every hour of every day. Rely on it. Let your gaze be completely fixed upon that and your whole life captured by that, and let that fill you. You Don't start thinking that you've got it all together, that you've got everything sorted, that you can start operating in your own strength and working for God's salvation, working for God's favor in your life, because that's when you become proud and arrogant and like a moralistic Pharisee, and that is not what the world needs at all. Let us continue to rely on the radical generosity of Jesus. Fix your eyes on that every day, every hour. Fix your eyes on that. Let that so fill your heart until your heart is overflowing with that generosity so that when you give, when you help people, when you do things for people, it's not like a Pharisee. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. It's not seeking repayment. It's not superficial. It's as someone who knows you are so, so blessed It's as someone who knows that you live in the unbelievable good of that unearned, undeserved, unmerited, extravagant blessing, grace, generosity of God because he gave himself for you. He gave all of himself for you. So give as someone who lives to give, just as Jesus lived to give himself for us. Give as someone who is radically generous, just as Jesus is radically generous. Keep asking, keep getting filled by, keep looking at that radical generosity, costly generosity of God, and let that change you, because it will change you. Let that change you from a Pharisee into someone who is like Jesus, someone who lives to give, and someone who changes the world. Amen? Amen.